0: We'll take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to John chapter 20. You might say, well, this is going to be a quicker series than we thought. Well, uh, we're going to start by giving a bit of an overview of the Gospel of John. We need to read the rest of John and study the rest of John in the context of the purpose statement of John, which is found at the end of John 20. If you are using one of those little Gospel of John journals that we're selling, that we have some more, I think some more this morning, uh, where you can kind of take notes, I would take notes on this one at the end of the, of the book, because we will dive right into John chapter 1, Lord willing, next week. I want to begin in John chapter 20 this morning. If you've ever played that game that we often play, it's just simply a question if you could go back in time and meet anyone or have dinner with anyone or talk to anyone, who would it be if you've ever played that? And if you grew up in any kind of Christian context, then you know that when you play that game, there's only one name off limits, right? You can't say Jesus. We know this when we play this game, so we'll say, listen, if you could meet anybody in history and you could go back and talk to someone, who would it be? But you can't say Jesus. Now, I I can only think of a couple of reasons we do that. It could be because, uh, first of all, maybe we know that everyone's going to say Jesus because all we want to do is just meet Jesus, and everyone's going to say that, so let's just take that off. Or it could be that everyone's not going to want to say Jesus, but they're going to feel bad if they don't say Jesus, so let's just take Jesus off the table and spare any embarrassment that might happen in the game. I spent all summer studying the gospel of John. Almost three months, I was reading it every single day. It's the only thing I studied throughout the entire summer. I just read it over and over and over. And as I did, I went through a couple of different stages. The first stage was, I honestly really wanted to meet Jesus. I just kept reading about the stories and seeing all of these accounts that aren't written anywhere else. And I thought about John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I wanted to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to see what it's like to be both full of grace and full of truth at the same time. And I wanted to be at the wedding. I wanted to dance. I wanted to honestly drink the wine Jesus made. I wanted to eavesdrop on the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. I, I wanted to see the look on the on the face of the woman at the well when she found out for the very first time that she was totally and purely and completely loved. I wanted to sit with Jesus in the upper room as he talked about heaven, as he talked about the Holy Spirit, as he comforted his disciples and encouraged them, as he prepared him for his departure. I wanted to just be there in Gethsemane when he agonized. But I moved to kind of a different place as I began to study I began to realize the more I read the Gospel of John that as much as I was hoping that we could behold the glory of Jesus and I could see him and know him and walk with him, the more I began to realize that we can do all of those things. Because every single verse of this book is there so that we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why this book exists. The Holy Spirit exists that he might give glory to Jesus Christ, that when the Holy Spirit is present, Christ is exalted. And Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 makes it very clear that it is possible for us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ and be transformed in doing so. But I discovered as I was looking at the word of God and, and seeing Jesus more and more clearly, that if we really want to see him, and if we really want to behold his glory, and if we want to see him in all of his grace and truth, We've got to learn to be still. We've got to learn to be quiet. And so I think sometimes the desire maybe to be with Jesus and just to see him and to walk with him might be there because it would be easier to know him that way than it is the way in which God has given us to know him. And we can see as much glory of Jesus as anyone was ever seen, but it demands that we sit and be still and listen and look. And It also demands that we receive the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1 says, Paul says that pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you might see Jesus. And so it is that God wants us to see him. He wants us to behold his glory. He wants us to know what it's like to be with him and to know him and be loved by him. And it is possible and it is my prayer that that's exactly what's going to happen as we walk through the gospel of John. Because John was there. He beheld the glory. He saw the grace and truth. But he's writing to people who weren't there. John, the last of the gospels that were written, John knew that he was writing to people that were not there. They did not see what he see. They didn't experience what he had experienced, but he wants them to. He longs for them to. And so because of that, this is not just an account in the gospel of John of stories and miracles and events. This gospel feels unlike the other three. It's not anything like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because instead of just being an orderly account or biography of the life of Jesus, the gospel of John is an invitation to intimacy. It is an invitation into oneness with Jesus. It is an invitation to know him and to fall in love with him. It is an invitation into what we are going to call, as we are walking through the Gospel of John, listen to this, it is an invitation into experiencing living and loving union with Jesus. Let me say that again. The Gospel of John is an invitation into living and loving union with Jesus, of being united with Jesus by faith, and as a result, coming to know more and more, day by day, the life of Jesus, which is real, and the love of Jesus, which is also real. John wants us to be transformed by these things, and there is no one better to lead us into this than John. John was was one of the 12, With his brother James, he left his wealthy father and their prominent fishing business. And he followed Jesus. He received a call one day to follow Jesus and he did it. He left everything, immediately went and followed Jesus. But John was not just one of the 12. He had a distinct relationship with Jesus. It's why he is the best one to write this book. Most likely, John's mother Salome and Jesus' mother Mary were sisters. There's a lot of evidence of the fact that they were sisters, which would make John and Jesus cousins. It's also true that among the 12 disciples, there were the three that were closest to him. Peter, James, and John was one of those as well. These three heard things that no one else heard. They went places that no one else went. They saw things that no one else saw. It was only Peter and James and John that were at the transfiguration and saw Jesus in all of his glory. It was also just Peter, James, and John that were at Gethsemane and saw Jesus in all of his agony. They were there at the courtyard after his arrest. They were there at his crucifixion. They were there at the empty tomb. And the picture that we get of that upper room in the Last Supper in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, where we get that information no one else gives us but John, we see an interesting picture of John reclining with Jesus at the table. What that means is that in the Middle Eastern table, it would have been low to the ground. There would have been no chairs. Everyone would, have been, everyone would have been resting on their left side, laying down, eating with their right hand. And it says that at that meal, John was resting on Jesus. Which is not just a picture of honor to be the one who is at the right side of Jesus. It's a picture of friendship. It's a picture of affection. It's a picture of love. And maybe it's that relationship which led to Jesus looking at John at his crucifixion and saying, John, take care of my mother. Jesus looked at John and said, John, take care of my mother. What's most interesting is this. Twice in the gospel of John, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's a strange thing for John to say because John is writing this about himself. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. That's like saying, I'm mom's favorite. It may be true, but you don't say it, right? It's a really strange phrase for John to use, referring to himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. But it certainly doesn't mean that it's the only one Jesus loved. And not necessarily that John was loved by Jesus more. I think what it communicates to us is this. And this is very clear from his writing, not only here, but in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation... That John had been deeply touched by the love of Jesus. He knew that he was loved. And so he would call himself the Beloved. The beloved disciple, I am the one whom Jesus loved, that in following Jesus and coming to know Jesus, in believing Jesus, he had been deeply touched by the love of God. He was confident that he was loved and his identity was that I am one loved by Jesus. It's not saying that Jesus didn't love the others. It's saying that deep in the core of John's heart, his greatest identity is that I'm someone who is loved by Jesus. And it's this close relationship And it's this deep friendship and this this awareness of love that John has that really explains the book. Do you know that the gospel of John only includes three stories that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? This is a completely unique book. John writes from a different place at a different time. He writes for a very different reason. And most of the time when we're studying a book of the Bible, we have to work so hard to figure out the purpose of a book of the Bible. we got to know the context. we got to know the audience. we got to know the time in which it was written. We have to look at repeated phrases. We have to do so much work, but not in John, because John tells us why he wrote the book. And it's right there in John 20, 30 and 31. Out of his deep affection, his deep love, his deep relationship with the Lord, his intimacy with the Lord in a way no one else seemed to have, he says this in John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, verse 30 helps us to understand because John says, there's a ton of other things that I could have said. As a matter of fact, if you turn a page, you can go to the last verse of the gospel of John, John 21, 25, John says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what John's saying, there is no limit to the things that we could write and the things that we could say. John said we saw miracle after miracle and sermon after sermon and event after event. We saw all of these evidences of his grace and truth coming together in so many different situations. We could write all kinds of things. And he says that at the beginning of verse 30 in chapter 20. Now, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. But these things I have written for a different purpose. So, most likely, John had read Mark specifically, and he knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knew about these letters. He knew what had been written. And it was his thought that I'm going to write something different for a different purpose. We already have a really good account of what Jesus did. I want to write something that leads people into intimacy with Jesus, into love with Jesus, into this living and loving union with Jesus. And so he chooses these things. But look at that little word in verse 30, it's important. Jesus did many other signs. John's the only one that talks like this. He doesn't talk about miracles. He talks about signs. All the other gospels talk about miracles. John doesn't. He talks about signs and signs and signs. Why? Because he has only chosen a certain number of things to talk about that point to his purpose that he's trying to accomplish. So he says, I've chosen these things because they're signs and there are seven of these signs and they're surrounded by seven discourses and they're surrounded by seven I am statements. And every one of them are written specifically to accomplish the purpose that John wanted to accomplish a unique purpose from the other gospel writers that we might come to know Jesus in a different way. So what I want to do is I just want to walk through verse 31 this morning. I want to walk through the purpose for which John was writing this book. Because when we get even next week into chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you're going to see that what he says right here in 20, verse 31, helps us understand what he says at the very beginning of the book. So The first thing he says is this. He is writing that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He writes, let's start with this, that you may believe. No one talks about believing more than John does. Almost 100 times he uses the word believe in the gospel. No one else uses it more. But what's interesting is the way he uses it. He never uses it as a noun. He doesn't say belief. He always uses the word almost 100 times in these 21 chapters as a verb. It is always something that you do. It is always something that is being done. It is always an action. It's never stagnant. It's never past tense. It's never, oh, I believed. It's something that you're doing. And so our mission here at Prince is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. We say over and over what we mean by that is we want to take those who have no exposure to the gospel and we want to lead them to trust and follow Jesus for the very first time. But we also say that what we want for you, even if you've known the Lord for 60 years, is our mission for you is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Because we believe that trust is not stagnant. Trust is not past tense. Trust is something you need to continue to grow in. You grow in your trust of the Lord. You grow in your belief of the Lord. And so what John is saying is this. I'm writing to convince people to believe. One of the reasons that we often tell people who don't know Jesus, we'll say, listen, if you're interested in the things of the Lord, start reading the Gospel of John. I grew up knowing this, that if you want to tell somebody what to read, where do they start starting the gospel of John? Why? Because John's purpose is to convince people to believe in Jesus. But the reason this book is also for those who believe in Jesus is because John's trying to convince us to keep believing in Jesus, to believe him more and more, to be more convinced and to know more of his love and more of his life. You could say that believing really does mean to trust and follow him. But you could also say it this way. To believe in Jesus is to be convinced of something and therefore be committed to something. I like those two words. To be convinced of something, I am convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, and therefore as a result of that, I am going to be committed to him. So our response to the belief is that we're not only committed, but we are walking with Jesus and convinced that he is who he says he is. But more specifically, what does he want us to believe? What does he want us to convince us of? Well, will look at what he says next. These things are written so that you may believe, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Now that word Christ right there is packed with with meaning. It's a word that means the Messiah. It is the one that refers to the promised one of the Old Testament. And for a Jew to be able to hear this little phrase, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, was absolutely a massive statement. Because every Jew would have been raised in a home in which they kept talking about the one that Jesus promised. The rescuer who would someday come. The rescuer from Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent. The one in Genesis 12 through whom every person would be blessed. The king who is seated on his hill in Zion from Psalm chapter 2. The one who is promised to bring justice in Isaiah 42. And so every passage of the old testament over 300 prophecies of the coming messiah all of them pointing to the fact that one day jesus will a messiah will save us one day god will send a rescuer one day the promised one is going to come and so for you to say to a jew you must believe that jesus is the christ means that you must believe that jesus is the one from whom every verse in here points he is the answer to every promise that we've ever been given. He is the hope that we have always had. He is the one we've waited for for generation after generation. It is meaning that you must believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But for us, it's a little different. Because unless you were grew up in a Jewish home that did not know Jesus... You didn't grow up hearing all of the time, we're waiting for someone to come. We're waiting for a savior. We're waiting for a Messiah. You didn't hear that. And so when you come to this and say, Jesus is the Christ, you go, well, sure. Like that's not that big of a statement because you weren't waiting for someone. So, so what do we have to believe? Like if we're not aware of all the Old Testament promises and, that, and that's not that big of a deal to us, what do we have to believe? Well, very simply stated, what we have to believe is this is Jesus is the Savior that God sent and the Savior that you need. Now, There's a thousand more things that it means to say that Jesus is the Christ, but here's what it means for us. It means Jesus is the Savior God sent and Jesus is the Savior you need. What it means is this, you need a Savior because without one, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. You need a savior because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You need a savior because you have no spiritual life. You have a savior because you have no spiritual heartbeat. And God sent Jesus as the savior you need. And there's no one else coming. He's the one. He is the one savior that God has sent. And he is the one that you need. And there is no other one that can save you apart from Jesus Christ. What you really have to believe is this. You have to believe John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So you say, what do I need to believe? Well, what you must believe is that you desperately need a savior and Jesus is the one you need. He's the one God sent and he's the one you need and there is salvation in no one else apart from Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Meaning that Jesus is God in the flesh, meaning that the only one who could save us from our sins was the perfect son of God. The only one who could be the sacrifice that we needed, the unblemished perfect lamb of God is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. We're not going to spend time on that because next week when we open up John 1, we will see much about the divinity of Jesus Christ. But the point that John is making is this. I'm writing so you would be convinced that Jesus is the savior you need. And as you begin to see him and the way he interacts with people, and as you see him in his grace and truth, what you're gonna see is that he's also the savior you really want. He's the savior you want because there's no one better than Jesus. But he says there's more to the reason he's writing. And I'm grateful for this. And God has used this in my heart over the last few months because I, I think a lot of times our tendency is to say all we want is for people to get saved. That's great. I mean, that, that's true. We want people to get saved. But that's not all we want. That's not all we want. We want more than that. And John wanted more than that. You see, his desire was not for you just to be convinced. But for you to be changed. It's not enough to just be convinced. I'm convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. No, John wants you to be changed. And that's what he says. Look at the end of verse 30. Verse 30. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, by believing, as you believe, belief has to come first. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask him to save you from your sins. You acknowledge your need for a savior. But his desire is that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you would know the life of Jesus Christ. That you would not only move from death to life at the moment in which you believe. That you would not only be born again, but that you would be transformed by the very life of Christ in you. You would be united with Christ and you would come to know his life. What he's saying is this. I don't want you to simply be convinced that Jesus is the one you need. I want you to be daily and deeply affected by Jesus. I want him to change you. I want him to move you. I want you to know what it's like to experience his life. John wrote, so that you might find life in his name. Over and over, he talks about this. I think maybe one of the most elusive but familiar verses in John is John 10.10, which says, a thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it, what? Abundantly and have it, what? Abundantly? I think sometimes we know that verse and we think, well, what does that mean? Like, what is abundant life? Well, all I know, it's the life that John experienced and the life he wants you to have. You say, how do I have that? Well, John discovered it in the process of trusting and following Jesus. And the more he followed Jesus and the closer he got to Jesus, the more he came to experience that life that he could have in Jesus. And so John's goal, and my goal for you, is that you might come to know abundant life in Jesus. That you would know it, that you would experience it, and you'd be transformed by it. I was so convicted uh, this summer of needing to, to sit more with the word of God and to be more still and more quiet before the Lord. And one of the questions I began to ask the Lord is I said, Lord, in a couple of months, I'm going to be asked to explain to your people what it means by having abundant or eternal life. And Lord, I don't, I don't really know what that means. I mean, I, I know it theologically, I can explain to you the very life of Christ comes when we're united with Him in salvation. I can explain to that, but God, what does it mean for people to know the life of Jesus? And here's what the Lord showed me. The Lord showed me that the best way to understand the life of Jesus and what it is, is to be reminded of the opposite, and that is the death. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, at the moment you sin, you will surely die. You know this. There were two deaths he was referring to. It was the physical death that would happen much later. But at that very moment in which they sinned, something died inside of them. Something died. What it was was the life of God. The life of God died inside of them, and in its place, that life which brought so much joy, that life which brought so much freedom, that life which allowed them to be naked and not ashamed. Why? Because they didn't have any shame. They didn't have any insecurities. They didn't have any worries or anxieties or concern. They were perfectly united with the life of God, and they lived in perfect harmony with the Lord. Everything was great, and at the moment sin came, that life died, and in its place was death, and now for every, belief, every person who was ever born, death reigns in us. We are born spiritually dead. And that death is the shame, and the anger, and the resentment, and the disgust, and the self-hatred we have because of sin. The death is that feeling you have when you walk into a church and you're reminded of all of the things that you did the past week and you don't even know if God even wants you here. And you don't know if God's going to hear you or listen to you and you feel utterly unworthy. Why? Because you have walked in deep sin. And the disgust of that sin, the hatred of that sin, and the depth of shame that if anyone found out who you really were and what you really did, they would never love you. So here's what the life is. The life of God is when all of those things are taken away and replaced with the understanding that you are fully and completely loved. That the one who knows you most loves you the most. That's the life. The life is that you might come to see how God can take away all the shame and the guilt and the hatred, all of that. And he can replace it with his own life. And so to come into the life is to be walking with Jesus Christ. And in the process of walking with Jesus Christ, you come to know more and more of what it's like to have your heart healed as you are open with him and open with one another. And you come to know that you are truly loved. I just can't help to think about John fishing. So John woke up one morning, it's another day. Many of us started school this week or we're about to start school and we get into that like, okay, this is just another day, right? Just the routine. You get up and you do the things and it just feels like another day. And so John just, he woke up one morning, it was another day. He was going to his father's boat. He was waking up his brother, bringing him with him. And there they were doing what they did every single day. What he did not know is that it wasn't just another day because he didn't realize that before the foundation of the earth God had appointed this day to be the day in which Jesus walked by and invited John to come. And at that moment, John made a decision. Listen, he decided to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God. He decided to believe that Jesus was the savior he was waiting for, that Jesus was the savior he needed, that Jesus was the savior he wanted. And at that moment, with knowing very little, knowing very little, all he did is just say, okay, I believe that Jesus is the savior I need. That's all he believed. And he chose to trust and follow Jesus. And then as he followed Jesus, his life began to change. He began to learn the life of Jesus. He began to learn the love of Jesus. And this is why I believe that maybe the most important verse in John is John 13, 23, in which it tells us in that verse that John was reclining and resting on Jesus Christ in the upper room at the last supper and the reason I think that's so important is because in that moment listen carefully to me in that moment John was not following in that moment John was not listening in that moment John was not doing anything in that moment John was just resting he was just resting on Jesus and as he writes this letter, he does so that we might experience the same thing, that we might enjoy that living and loving union that John experienced, that what John experienced in those intimate moments in the upper room might be something that would change our hearts as well. And what John is saying is this, all I did is believe and all I did is follow. And in the process, God changed me. I was redefined by the love of God. I, knew I know who I am by the love of God. And I know the fullness of life. And I know what it's like to be fully and completely loved And I want you to know that. And in the midst of all the theology of the gospel of John and all the incredible miracles and stories, the reason all of it is written is so that you might come to really experience and know that living, loving union with Jesus. About 13 years ago, there was this really popular Christian song that uh, every church was singing. And my worship pastor at the time wanted to sing it. And I kept saying no because I hated it. And I hated it because it was way too touchy-feely. It was one of those songs, you, you've heard these before, where you could sing it to Jesus, but you could also sing it to your wife and it would be totally fine. Like it was just, it was just like a love song to Jesus. And it had some really strange lyrics. And it was just really emotional. And at that point in my life, I was so cynical about those kind of things. And it just felt way, it felt too feminine. I don't know what it was. Too romantic. I just couldn't do it. And he kept saying, everybody singing this song. I said, no, I'm not going to sing this song. I don't like this song. You might remember some of the words. Here it is. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of the sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realized just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us all. Just so poetic and touchy-feely, and I just couldn't do it. A couple of years later, my wife Andrea was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And the strangest thing happened to me. I had been a pastor for 10 years. I'd walked with the Lord for 20 years. I knew God and I knew his word and I proclaimed his word. But in the midst of that suffering, I began to fall in love with Jesus. He began to be sweeter to me than he'd ever been before. He not only was the one that I needed, but he's the one I wanted. And my heart began to soften and I started to understand what it was like to have that loving union with Jesus. What happened is, like John, the Jesus I followed became the Jesus that I now rested on. He was not only the one that I listened to, teach me about the Holy Spirit. Teach me about the truth. Teach me about heaven. He's the one that I just rested on and reclined on. And then the worst thing happened. That song I hated, I started to love. That song saved my life. That constant repetition of he loves us. He loves us, he loves us and his love is like a hurricane and I am like a tree and I'm just bending under the weight of his mercy. That song saved my life, that song became my prayer because what it did is it reminded me of the loving union I had with Jesus Christ and in that moment of deep suffering, I got a little taste of the life and love with Jesus and listen to me, it's the only thing I've ever wanted since. It's the only thing that keeps me going. What keeps me going is that longing for the life of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the longing for you to experience it as well. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help us, that our eyes would be open, that we would not only see the glory of Jesus, but we would know that there is life in him and we are deeply loved by him. Last night, I wrote out this prayer and I'll end with this. This is the prayer I'm praying for us during this season through the gospel of John. Lord, Would you please kill any ounce of cold, lifeless, passionless religious practice in our church? Would you open the eyes of our heart to behold your glory so we can enjoy this living and loving union with you? May we not only trust and follow you, but may we learn how to rest on you. And may this generation of people that come to Prince be marked by a white, hot, passionate love affair with Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you. I hope it's your prayer for you. Because it's everything that God wants to teach you in the Gospel of John. Aspire heads and close our eyes.